Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. A little off the beaten path this episode, I had the pleasure, the immense pleasure of sitting down with Whitney Webb, who's a journalist I've been admiring uh, for some time now. She dives into subjects that are taboo, particularly uh, involving the intelligence apparatus that, that exists throughout the world, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, uh, the, the attempts to bring uh, digital panopticon to the U.S. And, and a bunch of other touchy subjects. We had an incredible conversation. I think you guys are really going to like it. And I really just want to repeat and drive home this message that you freaks have more power than you know. There's very few amount of people out there in positions of power, evil people in these positions of power that dictate, uh, that have dictated the course of, of our society for the last hundred years. Uh, it's time to fight back. Uh, I would I would definitely stick around towards the end of the conversation. Whitney dives into some simulations that uh, some companies have been running uh, surrounding the 2020 election here in the United States. And uh, I would definitely bookmark this episode particularly and keep your, your antennas up to see if any of, of what she talks about comes to fruition. Uh, you guys will hear it. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. It's funny reading this ad after this episode. Uh, Cash App is helping you. It's the best place, the easiest place to buy Bitcoin. We're in Bitcoin because we're trying to get away from these evil, corrupt individuals. We're pushing society down uh, a wrong path. You can stack sats, send sats, receive sats, uh, and sell sats if you so please. On top of that, you can DCA into sats and you can buy it. Uh, daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Most importantly, you can send sats off the app to a personal wallet. Make sure you do that as often as possible. Make sure you coin join your, your coins or I'll pull them. Uh, get them on the Cash App. Get them off. It's easy to do if you don't want to go uh, the, the non-custodial route. Um, you can send the, the sats off the Cash App. Make sure you're doing that. On top of that, they have Cash App Investing. If you want to stack slivers of stonks, if you're into the stonk market, that's your, that's what, uh, <laughs> that, that what marshes your mallow. You can stack slivers of stonk via the Cash App, via Cash App Investing specifically. Uh, if your favorite stonk's a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1 worth of stonks. On top of that, uh, they have the boost program. You can go to partner merchants that are partnered with the Cash App, hit their boost, and, and save some money. Just stack some sats with that saved money. And because all this is connected to your bank account, there's no four- to five-day waiting periods. You can start stacking sats, slivers of stonks, using the boost program today. Uh, Cash App may even be your bank account. They're, they're offering account numbers and routing numbers to users uh, who, who want to get their paychecks directly deposited uh, into the app or money sent to the Cash App. Uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, as always, make sure you use the code StackingSats at S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our great friends in Chicago doing incredible things at Owls Lacrosse. They actually got a shout-out in the PLL over the weekend. Owls Lacrosse, that's O-W-L-S Lacrosse, Owls Owls across. Use the code stacking sats. Download the Cash App. And enjoy this episode of Whitney Webb. Soak it in. Listen to what she's saying. Listen to the the people who are interconnected in this evil cabal. 
and speak up. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a hot afternoon on the Back Deck Studio. Uh, very excited for this episode. Sitting down, speaking with somebody who I think is one of less than a handful of journalists out there in the world right now, speak attempting to speak truth to power and, and diving into subjects and storylines that uh, the mainstream media stays away from. And I think we're going to get into some pretty heavy topics here. It'll be Bitcoin light this episode. We'll talk about Bitcoin potentially towards the end. But uh, what I really want to focus on in this episode is uh, the Jeffrey Epstein saga and everything that's unwound uh, since his death and sort of try to get at the question is, is this all connected with uh, an elite cabal attempting to rule the world so i'd like to introduce you freaks to whitney webb whitney welcome to the podcast hey it's great to be here thanks well thank you for taking some time to do this uh, i've been reading your work for quite some time uh, i've listened to your episodes on uh, quoth the raven and the tim Dillon podcast and really love the content if you freaks have not heard whitney on those two podcasts particularly i think uh, you should definitely go check those episodes out and i uh, really don't want to try to rehash those conversations so i think um too much of those conversations of course will have some overlap but i think for this conversation particularly it'd be uh advantageous to start with a contemporary story which is last week the the attempted uh assassination of judge esther salas and so the fedex driver showed up to our house killed her son and critically injured her husband and she had been assigned to uh, a class action lawsuit against Deutsche Bank, which involved um, some transactions that Jeffrey Epstein made that, that sort of eluded AML compliance. Uh, and so I think this is a good place to start in res media to get into the whole Epstein saga and the uh, intimidation that's going on with this case particularly. Right. So um, what's interesting about that uh, particular event is um, well, we can get more into this later. I think a lot of it doesn't it goes way beyond Epstein and goes to Deutsche Bank itself, which has its hands in a lot of very criminal pies, <laughs> um, I guess you could say. And also the fact that a lot of people have speculated, you know, uh, I would argue evidence based speculation anyway, uh, for years that Deutsche Bank is essentially bankrupt. And so any sort of scrutiny of its finances in court could lead to a revelation that they are in fact bankrupt, you know, which could have major, uh, you know, implications for the global financial system, potentially lead to, you know, that bank collapsing, which because of how just messed up <laughs> the global, you know, economy is and what a joke it is, you know, could lead to the collapse of multiple banks, sort of something on a bigger scale of what happened in 2008. So I think that's something to consider here also that it may be, you know, beyond Epstein, but also if you look at something like the Epstein scandal, you have 
you know, a situation where uh, numerous powerful people don't want things to come out about their relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And I think it's no coincidence that the most underreported aspect of that case is not are his financial ties to various people. If you look at his black book, for instance, his contacts, a lot of names that come up there um, are major hedge fund managers, um, you know, like Leon Black of Apollo uh, Management and people like that, you know, who haven't really gotten a lot of scrutiny for their Epstein ties relative to, uh, you know, public figures, maybe celebrities, politicians, things like that, right? So there's been a, a, a lot of underreporting about Jeffrey Epstein's financial ties to people. And what's worth pointing out is that in the sexual blackmail operation that he was doing with Ghislaine Maxwell um, before and after that and during that, Epstein was involved in financial criminal activity, um, including, you know, money laundering, the manipulation of, of currency, things like that, based on what we know um, about that. He was involved with a lot of shady financial activity, specifically in the 1980s, uh, involving people that were pretty intimately involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, so I think it's really possible that a lot of, um, you know, I mean, that that obviously appears to be um, like intelligence-related financial activity um, or financial criminal activity. So, you know, the, the extreme scrutiny of Epstein's finances in any capacity is likely to air out a lot of dirty laundry uh, for those people as well. So I think this is a fundamentally um, different situation than say, um, you know, information coming about who's on who Epstein caught on video with minors and things like that. This is, um, you know, a case that could potentially air out a lot of uh, criminal financial activity that uh, very powerful people don't want coming out. And the fact that the media has drastically undercovered that and covering the, the whole Epstein situation, I think, really shows that they don't really want cases like this to go forward. And another thing to keep in mind about this case is that um, it wasn't technically supposed to happen, right? because right before uh, this class action lawsuit was filed, um, the New York De uh, uh, State Department of Finance settled with Deutsche Bank over this exact issue regarding uh, Jeffrey Epstein and ordered them to pay, um, I think it was a $150 million fine, but I, I can't remember the exact amount right now. But um, what happened is that certain investors of Deutsche Bank didn't think that was going far enough. And so they basically said, um, you know, they basically decided to file a class action lawsuit um, to get, you know, um, basically punish, uh, to get Deutsche Bank punished to a greater extent than just that fine. And that is the case that Esther Salas was assigned to about four, I think it was four or five days before um, the really tragic shooting at her home. Yeah. And that, the weird thing about this shooting in the media in particular is that they immediately tried to cover it up and say that the husband was a target uh specifically and they weren't trying to intimidate her and then you came out with the piece that tied the hitman who wound up dead uh to an association called the kroll associates and they have some some weird history and and loose ties to the cia as well um be interested to jump into that particularly as well right sure so um the the official narrative right that's come out is this guy was like a man's right activist and he hates women but you know that doesn't really explain why he'd target the two men in the house of esther Salas and not the woman right and you know um the guy had a history of being kind of publicity hungry so it's kind of weird that he would go on a shooting rampage and release like no manifesto or video or whatever, like a lot of other publicity hungry shooters in the U.S. have done in the past, right? He just kind of, uh, you know, appears, uh, he's he's the suspect and he's found dead 
from a like a gunshot wound to the head, right? So, I mean, the whole thing's really suspect. So we don't really know, you know, what's going on. Um, I'm, we still don't, and I don't really tr- like trust the FBI to investigate this type of thing because what the FBI does in these in these uh, you know sensitive cases is they just cover things up historically, right? Including the Epstein case, which they knew about. Um, you know, in the mid nineties and did nothing about until, you know, for whatever reason it, it came out, you know, um, you know, more recently, like they waited till 2019 to arrest him or whatever. <laughs> right. So, um, going back into this guy's history though, and the, the Royden Hollander, uh, Hollander alleged shooter guy, um, what's really odd is his affiliation with Kroll associates, but not just Kroll associates, but what he was doing there before, um, so basically his activity for Kroll Associates was based in Russia and prior to joining Kroll Associates at their Moscow branch, he was involved in um, activity with the Russian government that also involved uh, Kroll Associates individuals before he was officially working at Kroll that involved what went on um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where basically a lot of, um, you know, uh, Western political and economic forces were attempting to create a new Russian oligarch class that would be friendly to the West. You know, basically, um, you know, uh, you know, creating the the economic system in Russia more or less as it exists today. A lot of people, the CIA was really involved in that. So were a lot of uh, Wall Street big time guys. <laughs> you know, uh, you had people like Larry Summers, for example, being really involved in that activity. Who later, of course, gets close to people like Epstein and has, you know, an interesting history himself. So that's basically um, what he was doing. Listen, Hollander guy was involved in that beginning in the early 90s. He was a lawyer in that area. Then he formally um, joins Kroll Associates in 1999. And then he's, um, you know, basically delivering and managing the delivery of intelligence for Kroll um, in Russia during that period of time, which notably also had, um, during the period of time where he was in charge of Kroll Associates, there was this issue in in Chechnya where there was um, you know a group that was doing ex, uh, you know extrajudicial uh, murders and kidnappings that was alleged to be CIA backed. So it's interesting that he was you know in charge of that branch during that time. But anyway, so why does this matter? Who is Kroll Associates? So Kroll Associates was created in the early 70s by this guy named Jules Kroll. Um, who is a really shady dude, in my humble opinion. <laughs> he basically invented um, what today is like, you know, private and private intelligence, corporate intelligence, um, and ended up, you know, uh, the success of his firm ended up inspiring uh, other groups to make similar firms. For example, Black Cube, um, if people have heard of that, was created with the intention of being the Kroll uh, Associates of Israel. Right. So um, basically what Kroll and Associates is known for um, is that it hires a lot of ex-intelligence people in the U.S., mainly from the CIA. They also hire, um, you know, from the FBI, um, former top uh, police commissioners or law enforcement figures. Um, They also hire a lot of people from British and Israeli intelligence, specifically MI6 and Mossad. So um, they're basically, you know, full of ex-spooks. But when you are a private intelligence firm, you can get away with things that private intelligence firms can't uh, just because of the, you know, you're in the private sector, not in the public sector. So there's certain, you know, rules that don't apply in the private sector that apply in the public sector. Um, Though, of course, I would argue that, like, you know, the public sector intelligence agencies just, you know, 
uh, ignore rules anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But anyway, in terms of like, if there was ever to be a lawsuit or any investigation or anything like that, they can legally get away with more. So, um, and, and they also, you know, they, they're, they're not bound to the loyalty of a particular uh, state, technically, right? They can, you know, just serve whoever pays them the most money, right? So that's another um, added factor there. So basically what Kroll did, it's rise to prominence. They, they, worked, they did a lot of work for governments, but they're also known as this, like the CIA of Wall Street because they did a lot of, um, you know, private intelligence, I guess you could say, activity for big banks, Wall Street firms. Um, and then in the early 90s, when this guy, uh, Den Hollander, was a lawyer and involved in this, they were hired by the Russian government to do some um, private business intelligence. Yeah, and it's the like loose associations between all these people who flow in and out of these stories, whether it be Larry Summers, Alan Dershowitz, uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, Bill Gates. I mean, all these people have been at one time or another photo photographed with Jeffrey Epstein uh, or included in his little black book and his flight logs. It's just extremely weird the the aura around this whole saga and the case like you were writing or tweeting earlier this week about the intimidation by alan dershowitz on um maria farmer and just yeah he's a real piece of work isn't he he's a real piece of shit if you watch that uh yeah i mean if you watch that netflix jeffrey uh epstein documentary he he's like he just seemed like he was apologizing or just trying to defend him the whole time throughout that that interview series and like why why do you think these people are intimidating witnesses and attempting to make it so cases don't don't make it to to the court and because you also wrote about or i saw you tweeting about the fact that um in the early 2000 cases that jeffrey epstein was involved in he actually broke a court order by by attending the trial and sort of intimidating one of the witnesses who wound up not getting on the stand as well. Um, well, I haven't really reported much on his court cases, right? So I don't know if, I don't think I, I wrote about that specifically. Um, but um, I mean, there is like a history of witness intimidation specifically around the first trial. I mean, you had Alan Dershowitz hire someone like a former FBI director, Louis Free you know, to go around and like uh, harass Epstein victims. I imagine having a former FBI director show up at your door. Um, you know, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty high level intimidation tactics, I would argue. Also, it's worth pointing out that Louis Free is um, the, was FBI director at the time that um, even though Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell reported the FBI in 1986 by Maria Farmer, that got totally uh, you know, <laughs> memory hold within within the bureau, right? And Louis Free was director during that time, and then he also gets brought into that whole um, uh, sexual abuse controversy at I think it was Penn State, like the Coach Sandusky guy. Yeah, he's also mm-hmm. the guy that was brought in to quote unquote investigate that and found like no wrongdoing of anyone that was living, anyway. <laughs> right. So I mean. We definitely are dealing with a large amount of insane corruption. And, you know, these are the kind of tactics they use against, um, you know, the women that were abused and exploited by this guy um, to keep them from, you know, shedding light on on what was going on. Um, And, you know, it has the full complicity of the FBI and, um, you know, intelligence agencies and a lot of other major factions of the U.S. government. Which is scary. It's, I mean, why, what are... 
what are they trying to withhold from the public or stop from getting to the public? And, and so <laughs> I guess is a lot. <laughs> That's what I would well, say. Yeah. I mean, it's not just it, about sexual blackmail or sex trafficking, right? I mean, intelligence agencies and like our government, the U.S. government, right? And most other governments are involved in just a ridiculous, mind boggling amount of criminal activity. Um, and I think if regular people, you know, knew what was really going on, uh, they would, I would assume they would freak out. But, you know, these days I don't really know because, you know, you have some crazy shocking story uh, come up these days and everyone's like, huh, you know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, there's just a ton of uh, insane activity that goes on behind closed doors that they don't want coming out because it's like, it's all business, but they're like criminal rackets, right? And they don't want anyone, um, you know, getting in on on, you know, their moneyed interests, whatever that is. And a lot of those are managed by, um, you know, intelligence assets or, you know, intelligence agencies, whether it's like the drug trade, for example, or uh, not just uh, sex trafficking, like what came up in the Epstein case, right? But arms trafficking, other types of human traffic trafficking, like forced labor trafficking. The US military is one of the biggest traffickers of forced laborers uh, in the world. Right. And, but that never really gets a lot of attention, but it's true. How are, how are they trafficking human laborers? So, well, it's mainly through contractors and subcontractors of the defense department that have been found doing that for like, you know, numerous, uh, on numerous occasions for decades and never really get in a lot of trouble. They confiscate people's passports. They go to places like the Philippines or, you know, other countries, um, like that. And they recruit people to work on us bases. And then the subcontractors, when the the person gets to the base, they like confiscate their passports. You know, they don't, uh, they don't, they basically enslave them. There was actually um, uh, a scandal. Well, it didn't really become a scandal, but it was reported on last year about DynCorp doing that to um, actually American citizens um, that were going to the Middle East to work as translators. They took their, their passports, uh, forced them to live in like these tent cities without bathrooms, stuff like that. You think that would have made like a blip on <laughs> on the news, but not really, because DynCorp uh, is, you know, it's a major defense contractor, but also the guy that owns it is a guy named Steven Feinberg, who's a major hedge fund manager, and he's also head of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, and he was, he's on the shortlist to be a, a subsequent CIA director, the next director of national intelligence. Lovely. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Great guy. People were up in arms when this stuff was going on in Qatar when they were building the stadiums for, for the world cup. Uh, there was, there were stories of, of migrants moving there to help build these stadiums out and their passports getting taken. And right. people were pretty pissed off about that. This is the first time I'm hearing of this. Right. Well, I mean, it happens. I mean, a lot of countries do it. Qatar definitely does it. The Saudis do it to a big extent also. Um, but for example, you know, going back to Epstein, right? I mean, several Epstein victims talked about how, um, he had all these uh, maids from the Philippines or, you know, domestic workers from the Philippines. Some of those, you know, maids had told, you know, these young women that they were stolen and that's why they were there. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. And today's story that you just dropped on iRespond, uh, which talked about ID 2020 and sort of plans that are being tested out in Myanmar, correct? Um where uh, refugees are, are being tested with are going to be the pilots of this sort of identification and uh, it sounds like a vaccine passport uh, program as well and, and somebody who's involved with that Eric Rasmussen is, has formerly been 
accused of being involved with trafficking as well. Yeah, so that whole thing, well, it's not just that they're piloting it they, uh, on refugees. They actually have been pilot, piloting biometric ID um, programs on behalf of the ID2020 Alliance since 2018 is when that started. Uh, what they're doing now is they're expanding it to newborns um, that are born in hospitals. So before it was allegedly, quote unquote, voluntary participation for adults in these refugee camps. Now it is, um, you know, from womb to grave, essentially. Um, as soon as a baby is born, they're going to get their, like, irises scanned and be part of this biometric ID program that, of course, um, <laughs> they, they basically uh, try and make it, I mean, the PR about um, these types of programs, specifically as it relates to refugees, is just really um, irritating. And um, a lot of it has to do with, like, they like to use buzzwords that people have heard about, but most people don't understand. Of course, on your podcast, it's a little different, right? But they like to talk about blockchain and how it's going to be, you know, it's revolutionary and, you know, and, and drop all these, you know, buzzwords like, oh, it's going to protect privacy and they're going to have control over their data and, and all this stuff, right? Um, but actually, they, they admit, right, they're like, well, you know, we could give them fine-grained control over their data, but we haven't done it yet. We'll eventually do it and you know and, and stuff like that and what a lot of it has to do with is um it's i respond is doing this biometric id system but they're partnering with a group called um the international rescue committee that basically um offers food and essential services in these really destitute camps but now in in order to access those services you have to participate in the biometric id thing so like if you want to eat or you want access to like clean water, you have to sign up to this program and you know um, get your iris scanned or whatever whenever you want to access that particular service. Um, they're also linking it to like cash assistance for refugees, but you can't access that uh, monetary uh, the, the those cash benefits unless you sign up for the program because they're only accessible through this blockchain power system, right? So it's essentially dangling a carrot on a stick in front of these people to get them to participate in this big technocratic experiment without, you know, there's no informed consent. Um, and, and I think it's particularly worth pointing out that, you know, why would, uh, you know, if you know who these people are, I respond in the IRC, you probably wouldn't want to give your data to them when you know, like, who backs them, um, who they're associated with, and the track record of, of the people who work there. Right. Um, it's not just like these are, um, you know, great hunky dory charities that want to like help the world's poor. I mean, they have a, um, a very, inter very interesting um, backers and advisors and presidents, a lot of um, very shady histories of abusing refugees, including children, like sexual abuse of children, widespread fraud, uh, basically forcing families. Uh, to choose between eating and letting one of their uh, quote-unquote aid workers sexually exploit one of their children. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? So these are the types of charities that are going to be piloting this program, and you think it would, you know, <laughs> get some sort of attention, too, that, like, this is, you know, they're claiming they're helping these refugees, but what are they really doing? If it was about, you know, helping them and protecting their privacy, why do they choose these two groups uh, to execute this program? Yeah, there's some weird like facade if you're an official like NGO or charity that you, people just 
assume off the bat that you you have good intentions, but uh, if people if you're paying attention to these organizations, I mean, a lot of them yeah. are pretty nefarious. Well, there's a ton of these so so called like child focused NGOs that are super shady. And when it came out that the International Rescue Committee was involved in these sex for food scandals and sexual abuse and fraud and all of that, they were one of 40 charities that were caught doing that. And no prosecutions yeah. were made. They like allegedly fired some people in different organizations, right? But one of these organizations was Save the Children, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, which is probably one of the more well-known like child-focused charities. You know, they were accused of doing the same stuff. Um, and I think um, Oxfam, which is a, a big one in the UK, and a, a several other ones, right? Um, just very, very disconcerting um, <laughs> when, when you think about it, because they're not—they're um, uh, clearly, you know, exploiting these people in these vulnerable populations. I mean, what are they going to do? Who are they going to tell? You know what I mean? So they're definitely, um, you know, it, it's uh, apparently that type of in, that that type of NGO. Uh, work attracts a lot of uh, very dark predatory people yeah that should be a baseline heuristic for anybody looking at these that they're they're claiming to help the children they're they're probably not and i think jerry sandusky that he was running uh, a, a child charity and even hey well save the children you know one of their fundraisers in the 80s was Ghislaine maxwell who hosted the uh, the Maxwell, I forget, I think it was like one of the Maxwell family companies, like Maxwell Communications or Pergamon Press or something, Disney Day to save the children, right? And it's just uh, really creepy <laughs> uh, yeah. that these are the types of people they are like, yeah, fundraise for us, right? Yeah, and then there was even allegations that the Clinton Foundation was doing some shady stuff in Haiti. Who was the right, uh, and that's where Eric Rasmussen was. Uh, he's been to a lot of these areas. Uh, the Iris Bond uh, president, right, um, has been to a lot of these um, areas. He used to be the head of human informatics for DARPA, um, and now he runs a, what he calls a profit for purpose company called Infinitum Humanitarian Systems. That's all about uh, tracking people in disaster and war zones. Um, spends a lot of time in Haiti. Um, He's been to Bosnia a couple times, uh, particularly in the late 90s when there was just an epidemic of like sex trafficking and organ trafficking going there. Um, you know, I mean, just really shady stuff. And he has like, well, if you read my article, you see it. But like him talking about Iris Bond is like just disgusting. Like the stuff he says is just absurd. He says stuff like, well, the first step is knowing who someone is. And once you know who someone is, you know what they're entitled to, uh, like food. You know, yeah. so like, oh, you have to uh, know who someone is for them to have, you know, be entitled to eat and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. I guess these are just how these people think. You know, they see them as, um, you know, they see them in a dehumanized way, I guess, um, that they're useful for piloting their programs or, you know, using their informatics product or whatever. But, you know, failing to really see them as, you know, individuals. Yeah, no, and it's he, 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 that was a quote from a TED talk he gave, right? It's like being being brash about it on stage. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> so that again, it drives towards sort of what I'm trying to get at in this episode. Like, is this all like a coordinated plan, and are these uh, intelligence agencies, this intelligence community, is it uh, coordinating to 
set up a digital panopticon where people can't escape it. And I think actually one of your pieces from a couple or a few months ago where you dug into a freedom of uh, a a slide deck that was recovered via Freedom of Information Act uh, request uh, basically laid out the fact that the the U.S. intelligence community wants to uh, build a Chinese-like surveillance state here in the U.S. and, and actually surpass their abilities. Um, which is something we focus on a lot here on this podcast and trying to, to right. fight back against that tide. Right. So that's the National Security Commission on, on AI that you're referring to, which is a, a, a mix of U.S. intelligence, uh, the U.S. military and um, Silicon Valley. But I mean, you asked a couple questions there, <laughs> right? So um, your question about like a cabal, right? So um, what's interesting is like you were, you mentioned earlier, right? A lot of the same names come up. Well, going back to International Rescue Committee that's involved in this refugee biometric ID thing, you have people like David Miliband, who's super close to the Clinton family as a protege of Tony, uh, Tony Blair. Um, he is president of that organization. It's backed by um, all, the, like its advisors and funders are all the major Wall Street banks. You have Madeleine Albright and Henry Kissinger advising it, uh, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, you know, all these noted humanitarians <laughs> that clearly care about um, refugees and children, right? So, um, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, you have associations with like people like the Clintons who have been tied to a lot of um, shady activity, whether it's money laundering or whether what's what they were doing, you know, what was going on in Mena, Arkansas, when Bill Clinton was governor and all the Iran-Contra stuff. Um, or accusations about, um, you know, uh, trafficking of persons in Haiti um, and, and ties like that, right? But anyway, um, so going to the National Security Commission on, uh, on AI, we'll hear about Henry Kissinger being there again, right? Um, because basically that uh, commission is co-chaired by Eric Schmidt and this other guy that used to be a Pentagon uh, undersecretary of something, I forget what, um, named Bob Work. And basically both of those guys are super close and are being advised by uh, Henry Kissinger regarding their whole activity with the National Security Commission on, on AI that was created by the, um, the 2018 NDAA. So on there you have like all the big Silicon Valley companies um, like Microsoft, Amazon, of course, Eric Schmidt used to be head of Google. You have another Google guy there. Uh, you have uh, Safra Katz from Oracle. Um, you have a lot of big Silicon Valley names on there. Um, you have people from military intelligence, uh, from, pin, uh, from the Pentagon, um, people from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, um, you know, the intelligence community, uh, different intelligence agencies, things like that, basically all working together um, regarding AI before that committee was created or that commission was created, the CIA and the Pentagon uh, decided to open up a joint AI cyber center to coordinate their AI efforts to speed up the adoption of AI by um, those, you know, uh, by the intelligence community and the military. So you see a lot of um, coordination going on. And of course, those same Silicon Valley companies uh, also double as defense and intelligence contractors, right? So really, at this point, um, they're the same crap, even though we can say, oh, this guy's from Silicon Valley, this guy's from intelligence. I mean, it's really all the same. And if you consider, too, that a lot of the big Silicon Valley giants of today uh, were funded with NQTEL money, which is CIA venture capital money, um, Palantir, for example, Google, 
um, all got really started because of funding from NQTEL. Uh, so what do these guys want? Well, they, um, they basically, their main concern, uh, since they're a national security commission, um, is about you know, how this affects, uh, how AI affects national security. Uh, their main concern is uh, China dominating AI and AI-driven technologies for the foreseeable future, leaving the U.S. in the dust, right? So they see a couple different ways to combat this. Um, <laughs> and as time has gone on, um, we can sort of speculate about which uh, of the two options they're going along with. So the first one is um, basically forcing the mass adoption of AI-driven technologies um, in the U.S., um, you know, um, getting everyone uh, to, uh, you know, acquiring as much data as possible, whether it's from facial recognition, um, you know, just surveillance technologies in general, in order to train AI algorithms um, and, and create more advanced AI technology than China, allowing them to, quote, leapfrog uh, China. Because a lot of these AI technologies are much more widely adopted in Chinese cities than U.S. cities, for example. And so this is something the National Commission on Artificial Intelligence was talking about last year, like last May, right? And so here comes coronavirus and <laughs> like the main consequence of that, you could argue, um, has been the, this huge adoption of AI um, or facial recognition or, you know, a tele, a te like uh, remote work, um, you know, remote medical visits, things like that, that can all be um, turned into, you know, data that's fed into these algorithms, right? So very convenient for them, <laughs> for sure. And they, they put out a lot of different things they wanted to see happen in May 2019, almost all of which did end up happening um, or are in the process of happening um, since, you know, March of this year. Um, but the other option they look for or they, they talk about that's not related to, that's not about leapfrogging frogging China is instead um, working in private with ch uh, China's economic elite to basically uh, partner up and work together and build the panopticon jointly <laughs> between countries. And this is actually uh, the approach that Kissinger personally favors um, in the National Security Commission on, on AI like document that I reported on. I mean, they use a Kissinger quote at the top of the PowerPoint slide and talking about that option in particular, right? Um, so it's definitely interesting. Um, basically what they say in that option is that if that were to be the case, the backbone of what, you know, you and I would call the panopticon, right, um, would be companies that are owned by SoftBank in Japan, um, which of course has been acquiring large amounts of, um, you know, AI-driven technologies, Internet of Things companies, smart city-related companies, um, you know, things like that. So, I mean... Basically, this is what the national security state plus its private sector partners, um, you know, are looking at doing. They're looking at doing one or the other. So, you know, um, I guess we can speculate as to which one they're favoring. But, I mean, these people ultimately care about business and they care about control. Um, so I think they'll probably at the end of the day favor the Kissinger approach, even if publicly we see the U.S. and China getting to, like, increasing public spats um, or, you know, potential military um, you know, uh, conflict or whatever. I mean, ultimately, you have a lot of economic elites. Historically, if you look at major wars, right, economic elites in both countries uh, working together and profiting from both sides during the war, right? So, I mean, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive in that sense, right? I mean, publicly, we may see a, d a decline in U.S.-Chinese relations, 
but you know there may also be an increase in cooperation between uh, the U.S. Silicon Valley and the Chinese equivalent at the same time. Yeah, and it's I mean as somebody who's been paying attention to China, particularly their surveillance state for some time now, like the the social credit system that they've implemented it would be extremely scary to see that come here and things like ID 2020, uh, right. I respond, even though they're not here yet, they are sort of the framework that would. Well, they, they the- want that to come to the U S so ID 2020, which is backing this stuff, this, this biometric ID program and, and these refugee communities, um, you know, who, who backs ID 2020? Well, it's, it's mainly Microsoft. It's the Gavi vaccine Alliance, which is, you know, the World Health Organization and Bill Gates, and then it's the Rockefeller Foundation, right? And, um, you know, they basically say when they're talking about, when ID2020 talks about this refugee biometric ID program, they say, we hope this will be a model for civilized countries and everyone else after we pilot it here. So there's definitely they no intention on their part of just keeping it in, <laughs> in, these, in these communities, right? Because it's all about, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, it's all about control. Right. So, you know, controlling who can buy what, um, where you can buy it, how you can buy it, um, things like that, having complete, right. How you can travel freedom of movement. Um, you know, it's basically, um, (laughs) fundamentally at odds with the, the way of life that, uh, most Americans want for themselves. Yeah. And it it seems like (laughs) Alex Jones tinfoil hat on here. It seems like this whole COVID uh, shutdown, lockdown, quarantine, whatever you want to call it, has just been a, a conditioning test to see how much we'll take and how, how far we can be pushed. Obviously, the CARES Act had a uh, tracing app mandated to be made by the CDC included in it. Uh, for some reason, we're, we're taking advice from Bill Gates about virology and, and vaccines, even though his his history of vaccines, particularly in India and Africa, Ethiopia, I believe, is, pr- is or what, what about his history as a human being? I mean, the guy that was so well. bad, he even got sued by the U.S. government for creating a monopoly. They, like, never sue monopolies. I mean, look at Google. They haven't gone after Google even. But Bill Gates was so egregious, they were like, all right, yeah, we got to go after Microsoft, you know. And if you look at him on tape, like, when he's being questioned by the feds about, like, his business practices, he just you know, comes across as a real asshole. So, I mean, that's the guy that wants to help all these kids. Okay. Then there's a good argument to be made that Microsoft was a stolen product. He basically stole it from Xerox and yes, I've heard this uh, and (laughs) would not surprise me. It's, it's, but it is weird though, that he's being pushed out there and paraded in front of her, especially considering his, confrontation with the u.s government in the past and he's he's being held up as this voice of authority on this subject where it doesn't really make any sense to me that he he should be making any decisions like he got grilled on i believe it was fox news or cnbc the other day about the trials that are having adverse effects on people the vaccine trials and he he seemed very squirmish and and uncomfortable like if you're reading his body language he (laughs) seemed like he he did not want to be getting asked those questions particularly. Yeah. I mean, I can't really, I, I mean, I can kind of understand why. I mean, he, in one of those recent video clips, he was saying the other day that he, you know, this is what happens when you let people communicate, you know, talking about so-called conspiracy theories about his background and his track record with vaccines. Right. 
um, you know, basically not liking the free flow of information. <laughs> right. So, I mean, definitely, I, I, you know, I would argue he's a guy with a lot to hide. Um, you, you can just look at his ties to Jeffrey Epstein, for example. I mean, he has worked really hard to hide that stuff. He has ties to Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, Isabel Maxwell, who is a really shady character in her own right. And also, you know, there were references in early uh, articles from the early 2000s that he and Jeffrey Epstein had major business links that netted Epstein millions of dollars. Um, but of course, you know, the New York Times, you know, when uh, Bill Gates claimed that he, you know, met Epstein only once or whatever, or met him for the first time in 2015, they came back with an expose where they were like, oh, no, well, actually, they met in 2011, you know, not bothering to look up this stuff about what was going on in the 90s or what was, you know, at least that it clearly goes <laughs> before 2011, right? So, um you know, he definitely is one of many people that has stuff in his past or like in his private business activities that he doesn't want to come out to light. But in terms of vaccines, it's worth pointing out that Bill Gates, a lot of his so-called philanthropy with vaccines is not about, um, you know, um, getting people the vaccines they need. Rather, if you look at like the Gavi Vaccine Alliance um, or things like that, they, they specifically t don't talk about, um, you know, you know, vaccines for the poor, whatever they say, the health of vaccine markets, not the health of people, right? Health of vaccine markets, you know, making healthy markets for vaccine producers. Um, of course, he has the, his foundation. Um, well, rather, it's the foundation trust that may has investments, right? They invest in things like pharmaceutical companies and also private prison companies like Circa <laughs> and, and places like that, right? So, you know, it's definitely at odds with his this public persona that you know he and and people and some people in mass media have tried to build around him, right? Particularly CNN, which usually does really um, you know uh, softball interviews with him. It's worth pointing out that remember uh, Bill Gates is really closely tied to the World Health Organization, part of the UN. Uh, CNN was founded by Ted Turner, who runs the UN Foundation and is very involved in funding UN uh, quote unquote philanthropic activities, right? So I mean makes sense <laughs> yeah and there was a rumor that after the u.s officially uh left the world health organization a couple months ago they just actually wound up reallocating the money to one of bill gates's foundations that would then just dump it right back in the world, world hey well since bill gates opened his foundation his net worth has gone way up so you know that's strategic philanthropy is the word for that you know he's definitely increased his own uh, personal well it's right after the, these antitrust hearings that went on in the late 90s with the u.s government then he makes the foundation um and makes all these strategic investments and does all these things and you know his his net worth has just exploded he was already like the world's richest man at one point and now he's even richer of course jeff bezos has really left him in the dust because of the giant doom behemoth known as amazon <laughs> right so um you know but i mean that's how a lot of these guys operate at the end of the day right yeah at this point it doesn't seem like money is their motive it's it's power and you mentioned jeff bezos and amazon you, you mentioned palantir earlier being close to the cia amazon's got a direct public relationship with the cia well Pal palantir actually like i would argue is the cia uh they were funded with inqtel money and peter thiel's money at the beginning right but then it was mm -hmm. inqtel money and for the first five or six years of that company's history their only client was the cia Yes, yes, that's correct. <laughs> so that's, yeah. a little, I would argue that's a little cozier than what Amazon's doing, where they're just the cloud for the CIA, but that's relatively recent. 
in terms of Amazon's history, right? Um, but Amazon is also, you know, provides the cloud to um, tons of U.S. government agencies, not just the CIA. Um, they give their, um, you know, a lot of police departments around the U.S. use Amazon's facial recognition software um, called Recognition with a K, you know. Um, even though Amazon <laughs> publicly says they're not selling it to law enforcement anymore, they actually, there's a charity that claims that they're using Amazon's facial recognition to find lost and abused children. And they pass Amazon's uh, facial recognition technology to law enforcement to use. So it's basically like this loophole that Bezos has. Just continue <laughs> passing off that, that software to, um, to law enforcement, even though they're publicly saying they're not doing it because they're like, we care about your privacy and surveillance is bad. Um, but they're still, you know, pushing it out in mass, uh, you know, under the guise of this charity. So yeah, they're doing it via the nest cameras too, correct? Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I think, oh. yeah. Well, I think anyone that invites anything like Alexa or Google nest or whatever, um, in, in, <laughs> into their homes is in for, well, I mean, it's, it's not even a secret anymore. Right. I mean, like there's been a bunch of weird, uh, I guess you can call them scandals, uh, with Alexa, you know, popping up and saying weird things or repeating weird things, showing that they were clearly, uh, the, that software was clearly eavesdropping on people when it was supposed to be off and stuff like that. And when you think about, you know, these companies in the context of like the national security commission on AI and how they're just like desperate for more data constant, like a constant stream of massive data to train AI on, uh, they're just, obviously they're going to be collecting all your stuff, even if they say they're not, because they're trying to feed, you know, more data into their AI than China. <laughs> right. So they don't get like left behind in the AI market because that's like, I, I, the more data you, you, you have access to to train AI on, you know, allegedly the better the algorithm, the, end resu the resulting algorithm is, and the higher quality, I guess, AI product you can later sell and market. So this is why, you know, they're worried about China surpassing and dominating the market is because like a lot of those cities essentially are like, you know, surveillance grid panopticons. And so they have a huge population in a dense area and just like so much data coming in from those massive cities all over China in a way that the U.S. doesn't have. So, of course, they're going to, like, you know, those those tech companies are going to suck all your data whenever they can. And they may what tell you they're not using it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean. But um, that's bullshit also. I mean, because remember, like, you know, supposedly the people enforcing them stealing your data is the U.S. government. But the U.S. government's also trying, has been lying about how much of its data, you know, it takes from people and how much it surveils on people. Um, to a to a huge extent, right? I mean, they lied about it for years. You know, you even had like intelligence directors lie about it under oath until it came out, right? So <laughs> yeah, Clapper got got caught lying about the NSA. The I mean, Snowden. Yeah, he doesn't go to, a, to prison for perjury, though. I guess you know when you're up there, you can just do whatever you want. Well, exactly. That's the most fucked up part about all this is it's a two tiered system where these people get to do whatever mm -hmm. they want, run around the world raping children. Uh, selling drugs, trafficking humans, and everybody else is subjected well, to because they're to like the panopticon. mob, right? And if you're not part of the mob, you don't get to participate in mob benefits of impunity and and egregious constant criminal activity. You know, you're in that. That's essentially what the tier is. You're either part of the mob, uh, which is you know the government and their private sector pals and you know, intelligence communities and whatever. And then there's everyone else, right. Who doesn't get any of those 
uh, perks, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, well, out of seven and a half to eight billion people, I'm not sure what the population of the world is right now. How, how many members of this mob do you think there are? It's got to be less than 10,000. I mean, uh, definitely a very small percentage of the global population for sure. Yeah. So what's the end goal? Just to have us all be cattle? cattle herded into this panopticon they can just run around doing what they want well do you feel like i I don't really i mean (laughs) i mean that inherently like is the speculative question right but um yeah yeah, i think at the end of the day it has to do with control because like a lot of the power and 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 money these people have you know an influence they've amassed now i mean they know that it's fundamentally unequal um to a degree where at some point uh, other people the masses, as it were, will want a piece of the pie. So in order to maintain the power structure as is, it necessitates greater control over the masses to prevent them from demanding some sort of, um, you know, change in, in wealth redistribution to an extent, right? Or wanting a piece of, of the pie, um, you know, things like that. So, and also this whole AI thing, the shift to AI necessitates that a lot of um, jobs be completed by robots and a lot of jobs that people hold now be eliminated of course that's going to lead to unrest when you drastically increase um, unemployment figures so the way to prevent any sort of unrest whether it's at like a you know at the oligarchy or over unemployment or anything else is to have a you know more control over that population just be able to restrict their movements um you know uh, control their access to food for example i mean that's Kissinger in a nutshell, I mean, he came up with that as U.S. policy, the food as a weapon policy um, in the in the 70s, right? So, um, you know, I mean, it's fundamentally about that, um, being able to do what they want, continue their criminal rackets, however those end up progressing, um, implement the plans that they have for society and it, like for AI in this case, um, without getting uh, pushback that could potentially derail those plans and systems. Yeah. But it feels like it's hitting ahead. It feels like they're getting too brash and uh, too too blatant. I mean, with, they uh, are. I mean, it's corruption. very in your face, I think. But, yeah. I mean, at this point, they're pretty much like, what are you going to do about it? I think that's well, the point we are at, this where, right? It's, <laughs> it's probably going to make you cringe, but this is where Bitcoin comes in, right? You just explain <laughs> uh, all of their power uh, comes over control of these systems, particularly. So I would argue a lot of... Uh, what enables this corruption to, to happen is the fact that a lot of these corrupt people have access to the Fed window and access to the Fed's money spigot. And they get first access to this money and then are able to go do what they want. So the U.S. military industrial complex specifically is able to use the coffers of the Fed to print money and hire these contractors to then go right. facilitate these uh, corrupt uh, actions around the world. Yeah. Well, I definitely won't argue with you about, uh, the fed being evil as hell. So (laughs) we're on the same page there. So that, that is where I believe, uh, I won't speak for other Bitcoiners. That is where I believe the, the root of the problem is, is that the, the source of the money creation, that's why I, I focus on Bitcoin particularly because it takes, uh, the ability for these people to print money at will away from them. Uh, yes, Bitcoin is an open network, and right now it's not as private as uh, it can be. It's gotten more private over time, but it can certainly be uh, extremely better at at preserving people's privacy within the network. Um, But I think 
in terms of curbing this corruption, uh, Bitcoin is one of the best tools that we have. Because if you take the ability for them to print money away, uh, if you take the ability for them to print money away from them, they, they can't do too many of these corrupt acts. And well, I think they're aware of that. And that's why they're trying to create, um, you know, a digital dollar or their own, you know, a U.S., a Fed-backed version of, of Bitcoin, Fed coin, <laughs> or whatever, right? And their attempt to sort of subvert that, um, you know, the, the, you know, supposed independence of Bitcoin or whatever by creating an alternative that's state-backed and essentially state-mandated at some point, right? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, that whole digital dollar thing, like what we were talking about, about the whole refugee thing, oh, you, you can get these cash benefits, but you have to participate in this biometric ID program to get them. Well, I mean, what if coronavirus relief in the future is only in the form of Fed coin, right? And you have to, you know, exclusively deal in, in that particular currency in order to be able to access those benefits, right? So I think they're sort of looking to set up a system somewhat like that in the future, um, in the U.S. to a significant degree. And I think, um, you know, my main criticism of Bitcoin is actually not that different from my criticism of like physical gold um, <laughs> or, or things like that in general, in the sense that um, when the government really wants to clamp down, how do they, you know, uh, how do you get your money out if they shut everything down, right? They have internet kill switches and stuff like that. I mean, what if they wanted to, you know, make it impossible for you to get money out? Well, if Bitcoin is virtual, I mean, and they have, you know, near total control over technology, they can easily uh, make it much more difficult for people to get their money out, um, you know, if they want to, right? And it's the same deal with physical gold to an extent, right? What if no one will buy your gold because the government, you know, threatens this or that if you're caught selling or buying it, right? So, I mean, they definitely have big guns they can pull out. Does that mean that there's no way that those could be used to subvert the system in either case. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think people need to keep in mind that <laughs> uh, the government's thought about these things to a big extent, right? And, and they have strategies and tactics that they can pull out if they want um, to prevent, you know, those types of, um, you know, independent financial systems from being used at some point in the future when they really want to clamp down. Completely agree. And Bitcoiners, are working on this and have been thinking about this. <laughs> governments are uh, any serious Bitcoiner views the state and the intelligence apparatus as our number one enemy and uh, trying to fortify the system against that. So yes, they do have internet kill switches. They can do that, and that's only one transaction related network. The most popular right now by far, but Bitcoiners are working to build systems that allow you to send transactions via short shortwave radio that bounce it off the ionosphere so you don't even need the internet you can use radio waves to send hey well that's yeah that's different right but i'm yeah. talking about like you know the average person maybe that gets that delves into crypto land right may not be aware of those types of things going on i mean i guess it, it depends on how committed the average person in crypto is to using it as as a tool to subvert state as opposed to a way to invest and make money or things like that. I think it depends more on the state of mind of the person involved in, in crypto than, you know, the system itself, really. We're, we're a Bitcoin, not crypto podcast here. Um, so well, I'm just talking about the thing in general, right? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. 
but uh, no, I, I actually think crypto outside of Bitcoin provides Bitcoin with some some cover because it confuses the authorities and the people trying to pay attention. Well, to, to an extent, uh, but you know, like a lot of um, the people behind some other coins um, are real shitheads. <laughs> oh, they're all. I mean, so I would, like the, I would argue the most Ethereum are. guys are. Um, they have like business accelerators that are um, being used to try and roll out this this th- this I respond thing, get it like sent out globally, right? They're like the that they use the Ethereum blockchain, and they use uh, and then uh, this guy from Deutsche Bank who was inspired uh, allegedly by I respond and, and the ID twenty twenty system and refugee uh, camps, right? That was just so inspired to take this global. Uh, turns to one of the co-founders of Ethereum to fund his whole effort. <laughs> Joe right. Lubin. So. Yes. Uh, so you said before we hit record that uh, the guests, the listeners of this podcast, were not going to like your takes. They're going to love your takes because uh, we would completely agree with you. There, oh. you <laughs> Ethereum consensus, that whole racket uh, has been co-opted by corporate and state interest. And um, that's, again, going back to Bitcoin, Bitcoiners specifically have a everything against the state mindset and so yes while here in the united states i know you're not here but in the united states western world where things are relatively rosy and don't really have to worry about uh, avoiding governments too much yet uh, that may not be the priority use something like alternative uh, transaction relay networks to the internet in places like venezuela they're building out they're working hard to create hardware and um, software that allows people to to propagate transactions via mesh networks, similar to bouncing radio waves off the ionosphere. Um, so yes, while it's not completely um, widespread yet, I think the goals and the the base infrastructure is getting built out, and Bitcoin only being eleven years old, I think if you if you fast forward another eleven years the system would be much more robust against government attacks. Right. Well, I think in that case, the weak spot of, of people in the U.S. And involved in this, right, it could, well, I don't know, right, but likely complacency, you know, oh, it could never get as bad here as it is in, in X country in the third world, and they'll never clamp down like that, so we can keep doing this, and then all of a sudden the government clamps down, and they're like, oh, we probably yeah. should have planned in advance, you know? I think uh, it's pretty clear, especially now, you know, with everything that's happened since March specifically, that some sort of clampdown is coming. I would argue that either on or soon after election day in the US this year, we'll definitely see another round of clamping down to a huge well, degree. I, I agree completely. I got two things here. Number one, complacency kills is one of our favorite uh, phrases here on Tales from the Crypt. And we try <laughs> to educate users to take custody of their own Bitcoin, make sure they're running full nodes and using it properly uh, in anticipation for that state clampdown. And number two, mm-hmm. I believe you're leading us into another recent piece about cyber reason and um, yeah, their, man. their plans around I the mean, 2020 election. They are probably the shadiest company going right now. Um, but it's not just them, right? Um, uh, in my opinion, the the parallels between what was happening right before 9-11 and what's happening before U.S. Election Day are very, very similar and very, very disconcerting. One of the things that happened before 9-11 were simulations of, you know, uh, planes hitting the Pentagon 
and you know things like that right and so we have this company called cyber reason you know full of ex spooks backed by a bunch of uh you know ex-israeli military intelligence guys and cia guys basically simulating terror attacks on election day they've had like several of these simulations i think the last one was in february um they apparently didn't like my series on them i did in january and uh so they stopped putting things out they started deleting tweets uh where they were talking about the election things like that so i guess they're going a little more uh <laughs> stealth than they were right but i mean basically what they were simulating um was the cancellation of the u.s election and the declaration of martial law um and this was you know i, I wrote that series back in january since then uh there's just been tons of what i would argue is predictive programming in mainstream media that the u.s election is going to be canceled there's going to be mass chaos on the day of the election or immediately after um that martial law is likely because you know even newsweek has been publishing articles directly talking about something called continuity of government. Um, anyone <laughs> who knows what that means will be well aware that that means um, if not martial, like public martial, in your face martial law is coming, some sort of major false flag is because continuity of government is a program that was first, well, it's existed ever since the end of World War II, really in the Cold War, but it really got overhauled in the 1980s, uh, intimate, uh, people intimately involved in that in the 80s during the Reagan administration weren't even in government at the time, but they were people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And then after 9-11, uh, COG, continuity of government, was activated specifically by Rumsfeld and Cheney, right? Um, and for an undisclosed period of time where they are basically allowed to do a bunch of stuff outside of the Constitution because the Constitution suspended. So the fact that Newsweek is talking about, openly talking about continuity of government and those protocols being activated back in March and April and things like that is uh, in, in DC specifically, um, very disconcerting, right? <laughs> um, and yeah. I think the, you know, they're kind of been hoping for this, right, for a while. I mean, if you look at like last year too, there was a joint statement from, let's see, like the Department of Justice, the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, they were all basically saying like, oh, these foreign foreign meddlers are going to hack into the, you know, uh, conduct all these hacks on election day, and they're going to try and subvert US democracy. Then you have, this is all last year, right? You have mainstream media publications saying things like, you know, hack, foreign hacks of election stuff um, isn't even necessary anymore, just the fear of foreign meddling and hacking is enough to upend U.S. democracy forever. And all these um, mainstream media articles saying U.S. democracy will never recover after 2020 and all this stuff. I mean, it's all very suspect. So you look at a company called, uh, a company like Cyber Reason, right? Um, they're definitely uh, <laughs> simulating how that's gonna happen essentially and what type of um, things are gonna go down. And what's really odd too, um, well, I, I mean, I noticed it after I wrote my original series on them in January, is that in a lot of these simulations, there was a lot of emphasis on self-driving cars being hacked and rammed into people and like running people over with self-driving cars. And I thought that was weird because there aren't there at the time, right? Last November, when they did their first simulation, there weren't a lot of self-driving cars on the street. But, you know, since coronavirus, there are a lot more. So kind of interesting. That and then, I mean... If you believe the uh, Matthew Hastings, is that the uh, the BuzzFeed reporter? 
Michael Hastings. Michael Hastings. Michael Hastings. Yes. Um, a lot of people believe his car was hacked. It wasn't even self-driving. Um, it's just. Yeah. Computer. I mean, they can do that. And um, most of the firms that uh, provide security for cars to prevent them from being hacked are also connected to cyber reason funded by the same people in the same um, Israeli military intelligence agencies. It's worth pointing out, right? Israeli intelligence, U.S. intelligence coordinate very closely. Um, they have ever since really um, the creation of Mossad and the CIA. I mean, it essentially happened around the same time, the creation of both agencies. Um, they coordinate um, a lot. A lot of things the CIA doesn't want to uh, do itself. It'll sort of outsource to Israel or Israeli intelligence, things like that, right? So there's definitely yeah. a lot of um, shady stuff going on ahead of 2020. And now as we get closer, right, like less than 100 days, you're seeing people say stuff like um, no one's going to, you know, after the election, neither side is going to believe that the declared winner won and there's going to be civil war and chaos and all this stuff. I mean, if you look at how they've been setting this up over the past year or so and what they've been simulating and preparing for, it definitely takes on a very different tone. And what's also weird about cyber reason simulations the way they set up those simulations, there's no financial benefit for them. They can't market any of their products based on the parameters of those simulations. They just said they were doing it um, for altruism because they care so much about protecting uh, <laughs> U.S. election system, system when it's all these like ex spooks and stuff, right? So that's pretty weird. Also weird is that their CEO says that his work at Cyber Reason is a continuation of his uh, service to Israeli intelligence. So um, that's a front company, <laughs> like 100%. Yeah. yeah, and they're backed by SoftBank is their main investor, right? And uh, they're also backed by Lockheed Martin, another one of their major investors. And um, they have just now uh, recruited um, some ex, forget exactly what his position was now. I wrote about it on Monday. I should probably remember, but he, he uh, used to uh, work at Booz Allen Hamilton, advised the office of the director of national intelligence, I think also um, involved with uh, the department of defense to a significant degree. He was just hired by cyber reason to launch their uh, U.S. public sector business. And he says that he's going to recruit an elite uh, team of alumni from elite U.S. military and intelligence institutions to market Cyber Reason's uh, security software to the U.S. government at the federal and state levels. Would you trust a guy like, like this that? At all. <laughs> no, no. And this is, and I all I can keep thinking about what was that Objective Two Ten or something where they simulated something similar to the coronavirus outbreaking like this? Oh, uh, Event Two Zero One. Yeah. Event, well, that's interesting too because the the guys that put that on um, have ties to this thing that happened right before the Two Thousand One anthrax attacks in Nine Eleven called Dark Winter, um, which basically predicted bioterrorism and all this stuff. And a lot of people that were at Dark Winter had foreknowledge that anthrax attacks were going to take place uh, just a matter of weeks before they did. And of course, if you know anything or have looked into the 2001 anthrax attacks at all, I mean, that was a massive cover-up. They tried to claim that it was Saddam Hussein uh, for the longest time, and then they had to admit that it really came from a U.S. military lab. So it's not really predictive analytics. It's more uh, telling people what's about to happen. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I mean, at this point, like, you know, the media environment is so manipulated, right? And people are so conditioned to believe a certain thing and to, like, trust the state and things like that, that they can get away with a lot of stuff. 
Um, you know, to a big extent, it's not, um, I think there's some quote about this, but I can't, I can't really remember it right now, but essentially it's not really even about, you know, you don't really have to execute the crime, uh, you know, professionally and perfectly, right? You have to be able, what you need to be able to do is control the cover up, right? And so I think yeah. that's a lot of um, what goes on. <laughs> so like Irene Narrative Contra, spinning. for example, all that started to get aired out at a certain point, but they controlled the cover up. And Bill Barr, when he was attorney general the first time, just pardoned all those guys. And then the media was like, okay, we'll never talk about it again. And then everyone forgets, right? Yeah. We need to break out of this cycle. Do you have hope that we can get away from these crazy, despotic, power hungry? <laughs> hey, I, I think so. But members? I think it's going to take um, a lot of soul searching among big swaths of the U.S. public that haven't wanted to do it yet. Um, in terms of complacency, willing to face the fact that things are bad in terms of how corrupt the government is. I mean, you talk to a lot of people, well, in my experience anyway, you talk to people in the U.S. about like 9-11 or something, you point out something that's like really obvious, something Building like seven. that. You have, <laughs> right, so you'll have people that sort of like their eyes get wide or whatever, and then they're kind of like, you know, they just say, it's too uh, intense for me to think about or accept or, you know, that's too hard to think about, too scary, whatever. Um, but, you know, how long are you going to keep your head in the sand? Uh, why those guys remain, you know, uh, you know, continue to act with impunity, never get in trouble for these, like, horribly egregious crimes. They're just going to keep committing them on, you know, larger and larger scales over time. Right. So, you know. Well, that's why I was happy that Epstein went down. And very unhappy that he was killed because I thought that was the smoking gun sort of burst the whole thing open situation that would have people wake up. Uh, but it well, seems I think like they're doing their a best combination of what happened that. in 2016 with a lot of the release of the Clinton emails um, that woke some people up, and then more people got more you know wise to what was going on with Epstein. Right? It was really more of an opportunity to air out a lot of the crazy stuff that has been going on for a really long time in the U.S., um, but has not really gotten any attention. So, like, sexual, intelligence like sexual blackmail operations in the U.S. precede Epstein by decades, right? And they sort of popped up and went away. People forgot about them. There were a lot of really awful scandals, just like Epstein, um, in I the mean, 1980s, like the Franklin scandal um, that actually murdered children, right? And that got memory hold, and that was tied to really high-ranking people in the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, you had a very good friend of the, the Clintons, Dennis Haster, get uh, arrested for, for pedophilia. Yeah. he's like openly admitted to be a pedophile now. I mean, you can't really deny that. He was found yeah. guilty of it in a court, <laughs> right? And, and then speaking of like the conditioning, and you were mentioning everybody like puts their head in the sand and gets too emotionally overworked when faced with these realities. Like, it is you can freedom of information act this information like operation mockingbird and mk ultra are no but they redact right? everything right so you want to talk about like the 9-11 high fivers often called the dancing israelis and 9-11 yeah there's a whole page in that fbi document that asks did these five individuals have foreknowledge that the planes were going to hit the towers and the answer is like almost two pages and it's redacted in its entirety so the answer is obviously not no they had no foreknowledge right and well, <laughs> they like laid it out in like a page and a half and the whole thing's redacted. You know, why is I, that? I, 
I didn't think we were going to get on the dancing Israelis, but they set up a camera and we're waiting for it to happen. And then there's and then they were high fiving and celebrating, and they were like, and "This they rules." Went on, yeah, they went on like a, didn't they go on an Israeli like talk show and admit that they when, were when they there? went back home? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They said they were there yeah. to document the event. Yeah. People don't want to hear this stuff, Whitney. One of, one of them got married on 9-11. He chose that as his wedding day a few years later. Really? That's yeah. pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I hope more people are waking up. And so maybe maybe we can do this right now in this episode. Is uh, Hey, freaks, uh, pay attention to the election this year. If it doesn't go off, if there's some terrorist attacks during it and we get martial, martial law, they, they choreographed this and... and and basically told you it was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm really expecting it just because of what I've seen over the past year. And since I wrote about those guys in January, right? Uh, the first time I did a three part series on them. Um, I really recommend people go back and read it. Um, I just, and I, you know, I have a new article on them on Monday, but they're just like one piece of this, right? There's like a bunch of, like I said, if you just look for, <laughs> if you do like a Google news search or something with, chaos the word chaos in the election there's a couple of these other buzzwords as you look at these pieces you'll notice like democracy or end of democracy things like that i mean you will just be you know you'll find just a ton of articles from the past year uh seeding all of that information out there like preparing people for a a public new form of government that's not democracy i mean i would argue in the u.s that we've had the illusion of democracy right for a very long time because you've like you know both parties are bullshit it's the same bullshit, right? 110%. <laughs> Red team versus blue team is a huge distraction. And what I wonder, right. but we always hear in America, particularly, we do have that that sort of nuclear button where we have so many goddamn guns spread amongst the individual citizens. Could, yeah. Well, that's a problem for them. Off? Right? right? That's a problem yeah. for them. This is why they've been calling conspiracy theorists domestic terrorists since last year. And um, are saying, you know, the QAnon people, not that I, I think QAnon is an intelligence psyop, but I think um, that they're sort of framing them and anyone that believes in any sort of conspiracy theory that any sort of way connects to QAnon, including, you know, sex intelligence, like sex trafficking, like Epstein or whatever. You know, they're trying to paint all of that with the same brush. You had PBS come out with a special just two days ago saying all conspiracy theorists are racist and white supremacists talking about Alex Jones and, and stuff like that. Like he's the only conspiracy theorist and all conspiracy theorists are just like Alex Jones or whatever, you know, um, you know, I mean, Lincoln, they're, tr- they're trying to, to set it up. You know what I mean? Where people that, you know, don't buy Lincoln the bullshit like, are terrorists. Like it back to MK ultra, the CIA created the term conspiracy theory after JFK was murdered. The Warren to... commission. It's true. Yes. And, I just hope people can see through this bullshit this time because it's compounding, right? Like we had nine 11 and we had the great financial crisis. Now we have this pandemic and another great financial crisis. We have Joe Biden who can't even fucking speak. Uh, <laughs> and Donald Trump who is, though, I mean, those debates, they're either going to be super cringe. They're or not going to hilarious, uh, but they're they can't not going to happen on a zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> they're not gonna they're not gonna let him do it yeah i don't maybe think they'll that's... let biden on stage with trump i mean he just he can't even like you know keep his eyes open and maybe that's how they 
they set the stage for the elections called off like maybe he dies of dementia or something a couple of weeks before i don't know though i think they're going to try and push him through and i think they're probably going to end up declaring him the winner because if you look at who's advising him you have people like the deputy director of the cia under obama under obama is the national security advisor to the biden campaign right now avril Kane, right who also is a former consultant for palantir and a bunch of like ex spooks are openly behind the Biden campaign. So they're just looking well, for some guy that'll rubber stamp, whatever, you know, and that's Biden. He's been that his whole career. Well, this right. is like a huge misstep on their part, because if they are forced to debate, it's going to be glaringly obvious that he's yeah, but they imp- won't because all the all like the media, you know, channels that host the debates will just do what they're told, you know. And what's that? You can't control him, though. Like he he. he showed up to like a town hall meeting the other day and got the the name of the place completely wrong and like stumbled his way through oh you guys know where you are like (laughs) right but he's been doing that for months right and it hasn't derailed anything no one's been like we have to pick another candidate or anything like that you know what i mean i mean he's had like insane gaffes for months like forgetting his own name calling his wife joe biden you know like in any other world, people would be like, this guy, no. But, I mean, they're just trying to, like, you know. Talking they don't really they don't really legs. need a different candidate against Trump. They're just being like, you know, vote blue no matter who. You know, so, I mean, they're just looking for some face to sort of ram through and, you know, put some other bullshit puppet in power. Change the cabinet around. You know, I mean, it'll be like Obama 2.0, which, you know, his Obama's whole cabinet was chosen by Citibank. Right. Yeah, I saw you tweet, tweet that the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, that's one of those emails that came out in 2016, right? So, you know. What were I the specifics doubt- of that? Um, it was, um, I think, uh, John, if, I have, if I remember correctly, like John Podesta was involved in the transition for the Obama White House, and it was like the VP or some top executive at Citibank saying, all right, these are the people we think should be in Obama as, you know, in these different positions in the Obama cabinet. And almost all of them were the people that eventually got those positions, like Eric Holder, you know, various other people, Susan Rice. <sighs> the whole list John is there Podesta. for anyone that wants to go see it. So. Yeah, but I mean, you know, president, you know, FDR, right, back in the 30s says presidents aren't elected, they're selected. (laughs) So this is like nothing new. You know what I mean? So in the case of Biden, I mean, they're just trying to keep him out of the public spotlight and like really um, control um, the mainstream media reporting on Biden, because the only people that really support Biden, like still watch cable news. (laughs) You know, so it's like, they're just trying to control it and get it to November. No, and, and controlling the mainstream media and then clamping clamping down on independent media on online, I mean, the the censorship that's going on, whether it be people talking about hydroxychloroquine or just having a wrong thought about the state of the country, getting kicked off uh, platforms or being quote unquote extremists like Alex Jones, you mentioned. Like, right, but yeah, it's not even just social media anymore. I mean, they'll pull out a website by the roots from the hosting it's, if your hosting's in the U.S. I mean, they'll uh, they'll start pulling out the big guns at some point. I mean, they're definitely going to clamp down either right before the election or on election day or after. Um, actually, all of the big social media CEOs, um, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, met with U.S. intelligence last September about protecting public discourse, quote unquote, ahead of the 2020 election. 
um, you know, talking to DHS and the CIA about mass deplatforming. So, I mean, that's in the works too. It's happening. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if I get deplatformed at some point. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I will. I am super shadow banned on Twitter. Yeah, but like they, they like block a lot of people that follow me say they never see my tweets in their timeline or they'll see articles of mine like disappear in real time as they're looking at it on their timeline and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I mean, they've been doing that for a while, right? That's why it's really important to if there is like a page or a writer or a content producer that like you really like and you want to follow. Um, it's best to go straight to the source of like their web page um, or where they put their content out and like bookmark that um, or have some sort of way where you can access their content or follow them that is independent of Facebook and Twitter and all that bullshit. Yeah. And so why do you do what you do? You're again, you're in my mind, one of the best journalists <laughs> out there right now talking about stuff that many people shy away from and don't even want to get involved in like why you seem dedicated and driven with a passion that I haven't seen from a journalist in in quite a while um why do you do what you do ah well um um, let me see so you know I lived in the U.S. for a really long time um I had sort of I guess you could say contrarian views um you know like I was in the 9-11 truth when I was like 13 (laughs) right it wasn't exactly easy Right. But, you know, you get to a point where, um, you know, I mean, you see what's going on. And even if no one's listening to you, um, which is how I felt most of the time when I lived in the U.S., you know, at some point, um, I don't know. I mean, I just I hate the world they're creating and I just want to stick them in the eye, you know, as much as I can. And so, you know, it's cool that people read me and stuff and I have a platform now uh, to do that. But I didn't when I started. It was all about um you know, taking these guys down a peg if I could. Um, You know, now I have a kid who's two and a half. Um, You know, I'm going to keep doing this for as long as I can, really, because, I mean, what kind of world is she going to grow up in if, you know, people like me don't do something? (laughs) You know what I mean? uh, It's just, um, you know, uh, I try and keep, like, you know, emotional walls up, I guess you could say, between, like, you know, Uh, my writing and the emotional effect of the stuff that I write about. But it's really important that people start to, you know, recognize what's like actually going on, you know, and that it's not, you know, the whole like everything you're told about U.S. history and how the U.S. government works, like when you're in school is 100% bullshit. So people really need to take the time and like develop some moral courage to educate themselves and people around them before, you know, shit gets really bad. <laughs> because when, when clampdowns come and things like that, right, it's going to be increasingly harder to, you know, get that information out there. So it's really important to do that now, right? Why, you know, people like, you know, I have a bigger platform now because of social media, but that's going to go away and I sort of know that. So, you know, I'm trying to bust out as much as I can, you know, before that deplatforming happens, right? But, you know, I mean it's really incumbent on, on everyone to try and do something. I mean, even if you like have a blog that you don't think anyone pays attention to, I mean, maybe they do, you know what I mean? But um, it's really important that everyone tries to do something. I completely agree with that. And that's why we do this podcast and the newsletter that I do. We focus on Bitcoin, but um, really sort of try to intertwine the subjects that you're focused on as well, because it's all 
connected at the end of the day. And yes, yeah. I became a, I became a father earlier this year and, and greet wholeheartedly that moment. And uh, my son entering my life has certainly given me hyper focus on making the future better for him. Again, it is pretty depressing if if we continue down this path. Like it is not, and I just I was the same way. I was in the loose change and got yelled at for for sharing it with my parents and stuff like that. And <laughs> I fell, I sort of fell in line for a while, and then college got got more into like, hey, this shit's fucked, and that's why I got into Bitcoin and. Um, more people need to wake up and not be afraid to speak up. And so that's why I love that you do what you do because it gives people like me courage to, to jump into the conversation too. And, and going back to what I said earlier in, in the episode, like it's a very small group of people who make all these decisions. And it, it's if more and more people are able to realize that they're being manipulated by a very, 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 very small minority, the, the power of the overwhelming majority should be able to to overtake this evil cabal whatever you want to call it right i mean in theory but like i said a lot of it has to do with people realizing that you know they have power you know what i mean the system only works because everyone you know at the bottom thinks they're powerless right or is afraid of the people at the top so i mean we're not going to get anywhere until people shed that fear um and you know, move on and realize that they have a, uh, an ability to change something or make a difference, you know? I mean, I know that sounds cheesy, right? But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I did it and I was like nobody, you know? And now a bunch of people read my stuff and pay attention to me, you know? But I was like, you know, <laughs> just some random conspiracy theorist, whatever, right? Um, you know, a few years ago, I mean, no one gave a shit what I said, and, but I, you know, put stuff out there and you know, tried to do something and it's worked out for me and that, that could be like that for anyone. Yeah. You're crushing it. Wait, you're crushing <laughs> it. Thanks. Um, I know I allotted off an hour and a half of the time, so I want to respect your time. Where can we find out more about you? Um, is there anything we can do to help? I know you have a Patreon, um, anything in the works that, that we should be on the look for. Um, yeah, well, I'm writing a book on Epstein that should, um, I should finish it up probably by the end of the year. Um, I also, uh, just launched a new page that's gonna, uh, basically be for a lot of my long form more investigative work, uh, called Unlimited Hangout. And also, uh, you know, people, uh, like Vanessa Beely, uh, for people that might know about her is going to be publishing some things there too. Um, I also write some things for The Last American Vagabond. Um, so you can find some of my work there as well. Um, if you'd like to support my work or get early access to my articles that go up on Unlimited Hangout um, a day or two before everyone else, you can sign up on my Patreon. Uh, just search for me <laughs> um, and you should see my face pop up. So um, beyond that, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, underscore Whitney Webb, uh, why I'm still on there. But uh, I think I have a couple months at best. Uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, it is what it is and it, you know, it's something why it's still there, even though it's like heavily, heavily censored, I guess you could say, or shadow banned or whatever, but you know, Jack, if you're listening, let her, let her stay on the platform. <laughs> he doesn't <Please>. care. <laughs> he's, he, he's been on this podcast before he's listened to this podcast before Jack, if you're listening, keep her on. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, maybe then, <laughs> We'll see. We shall see. I doubt he's listening. Um, Whitney, thank you for your time. And again, keep crushing it. Uh, like I said, your 
courage to to write about these subjects that that most people find taboo and bringing a light to these genuinely evil people i think evil is the correct word to describe the people involved i would agree stuff mm-hmm. um is important we need to bring light uh to these evil nefarious people and uncover them and and again i i want to end with the message that if you freaks listen out there you have power there is very few of these people who make these terrible decisions and if we work together and and stand up for this shit we can actually make a difference that's why we bitcoin whitney (laughs) all right bitcoin's one tool you should look into urbit too um that's a conversation for another day (laughs) all right sounds good thanks all right I hope you have a great night. Thanks, likewise. Thanks again. Ah, thank you. Peace and love, freaks.